Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. I'm Dan Schwester. I have a very special guest with us today uh, to talk about a very, um, quote unquote, basic thing that you really should be mastering. And if you're not, uh, we're going to give you some ideas on how to do that. Uh, I have with me Rami Duckworth. Um, and uh, if you know the name, if you've read some of the magazines or if you've gone to a conference anywhere, uh, you've seen or heard this guy. Uh, he is uh, definitely one of the uh, more prominent people in our profession. And uh, it's really great to have you on the show today, Rami. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Oh, I appreciate it. And I'm really excited to be here. I've been really um, catching up on some episodes that I'd missed and um, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be part of the crew. Um, my, um, my background, uh, I started as a, um, <clears throat> well, I started as a chemical engineer actually, and was looking to get out of that profession and wound up taking a first aid course that I found really intriguing and uh, moved up here to uh, Connecticut from the Philadelphia area and got involved as a, uh, a volunteer EMT and found really my passion in life. So I've been doing that uh, fire rescue and EMS for about 30 years, um, career and volunteer, um, hospital health care uh, and education in all different areas of the, the Northeast, uh, primarily around Connecticut. And I'm currently a fire captain and a paramedic EMS coordinator for the Ridgefield Fire Department in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And uh, as you say, my side work, I'm, I'm really passionate about sharing my passion for, for what we do and educating. And, and really, I guess my niche uh, that I've, I've settled into came from doing a lot of uh, work as doing paramedic intercept and really enjoying working with a wide variety of different people and focusing on those, those fundamentals that regardless of what it says on your patch, we can all be doing better and, and are crucial for wherever the patient is going to wind up going ultimately. So I'm, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's funny you talk about fundamental, um, you know, I think a lot of, there's a little bit of a stigma when you, especially when you talk to paramedics about skills that we may regard as a basic level skill, quote unquote, which we don't like that. I don't like the term basic. I don't like it as an EMT. I don't like it defining what we do because these things are really fundamental. It's, it's, it's foundational. You have to be really, really good at these things to be able to do the advanced level stuff. That's, that's my feeling. What do you think? Oh, a hundred percent. And we keep coming back to it with airway management, with breathing, with circulation that, um, <clears throat> you know, there is no magic drug called resuscitol that they're going to come out with next year. It's one milligram. You inject it and once and in the next 30 seconds, the patient's going to jump up, shake your hand and offer to buy the whole crew a, a barbecue dinner. Uh, it, it's all about, you know, for every aspect of what we do from cardiac resuscitation to, to, you know, even the most basic calls, these, these fundamentals concepts should be guiding our hands. And I find that the better that we get at these fundamentals, the easier it is for us to understand and accept a lot of the new research, new tools and techniques that come down the pike, because they all tend to build off of these same fundamentals. And if you, it moves us away from those um, you know, more, uh, more towards the evidence-based medicine than eminence-based medicine. And then I told you, you should do this and that. Um, when, you, when you've got those fundamentals down, like you say, you can build on them up to whatever level that you're supposed to be operating. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I and I like the evidence over eminence. Um, I think we get a little bit too much eminence sometimes that we look up to the people that maybe uh, are a little dogmatic, haven't changed with the times, or who don't keep current, um, and they tend to have an undue influence. Um, and that's a really good way to put it. Um, you know, I, I like I said, I think uh, one of the things you know, if you want to show me what a great clinician you are. Um, don't show me the advanced stuff. Show me, show me the fundamentals. Show me you know how to do a physical exam. Show me you know how to uh, talk therapeutically to a patient. Tell me, uh, show me that you can, um, you know, um, ventilate a patient with just adjuncts and without a tube or a laryngoscope or anything like that. That's going to show me your mastery. I don't, you know, I can teach. I taught my kid to intubate. It doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Um, I was home. I was I was getting ready to teach a difficult airway class. I think she was 10 or 11 at the time. And she's like, oh, what is that? She goes, oh, that's a head. I go, well, it's not a real head. She goes, oh, that's good. And uh, she's like, um, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm practicing putting a tube in because, you know, I've gotten all the stuff from the manufacturers and got all the, the toys. She goes, can I try? And I'm like, yeah, sure. About 15 minutes. She's 11. She got it in. But the big difference is. Could she do it really in the world? Did she know when to do it? Did she know when not to do it? Did she know how to prepare for it? You know, just doing a skill doesn't impart that you're a master of of that discipline. Oh, anything? Hundred percent. A hundred percent. Excuse me. A hundred percent. And um, uh, it took me a while, honestly, to learn that as an educator as to why some students would struggle. Even if they gained mastery of an individual skill, why that wouldn't translate into their ability to apply it. And you're absolutely right. E even when I wind up teaching things about um, you know, cricothyrotomy or a needle chest decompression, things like that, you know, certainly we want to make sure that people have the individual skill down. But um, so many students have the expectation that it's going to be, well, I'm going to come in and they're going to have us, you know, uh, whatever, poke a hole in the rubber mannequin here, there, or wherever, and then that's going to be it. Like, no, 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 no. That's not the focus. The focus is on the decision-making, um, not just, you know, can you do it when, you know, can you know when you should be doing it? And, and that is absolutely important. You got to have the skill. You got to know when to pull the trigger on that skill. And you have to have gone through that scenario enough times that you have the confidence to do it because, you know, hopefully nobody really wants to be on that call when you have to say, uh, you know, put a, uh, do needle decompression or, or do a crike on somebody. So it's, a, it's that combination of competence and confidence that, uh, that you got to put together. And again, I think, uh, as we just said, it's all about the fundamentals. When you have that strong foundation of the fundamentals, then it's easier to understand when you should pull the trigger on the more challenging tools and techniques. And you will have the confidence to know, okay, you know, we don't want to be here, but I know this is what's next. Uh, I know this is what's going to move this patient towards improvement or at least stabilize them. Exactly. Um, and I, and I think one of the, one of the biggest things and the, the thing that we kind of talked about and the, the focus of what we're going to talk about today is a tool that I think is really ignored. I think it's kind of given an over, it's overthought by paramedics, EMTs, first responders, what have you, because I think it's such a simple piece of equipment, 
but it's so there's so much nuance to it and there's so much you can learn about it um i'm talking about the simple manual resuscitator the bvm the bag valve mask my my old medical director called it the bag of death and we can get into <laughs> why we did why he did that but this is something that is bug easy okay it's a mask it's a it's a self-inflating bag and it's some valves um they cost about 20 bucks a piece um, they are disposable. They used to be, I, I, I do confess I, I'm the old guy on the show. So everybody makes fun of me. I do remember when we had the ones you had to wash out in the hospital sink. I mean, <laughs> gross, but it's what we did. Um, and I'll get, you know, they'll make a, I, they they'll be, they'll make, they'll make fun of me if I don't make that comment, but this is something that's a simple piece of equipment. It's like a blood pressure cuff, a stethoscope. Uh, why do people get it so wrong? What, why do we consistently mess this piece of equipment up and what can we do to be better about it? Well, I think it starts with familiarity breeds contempt. Um, it's something that we see all the time and it's something that anybody could use or do, or basically if you're associated with an ambulance, if you're any kind of pre-hospital provider, then you should be able to do it. So I think advanced providers often look down on it as a, a lesser skill and that ties back to, you know, even the verbiage we used before basic. Right. right. <clears throat> um, so this is this is a basic thing. And for many of us who have been doing it for a long time, there was, uh, a, a, as you say, there was the idea that, oh, well, the, the bag valve mask is such a basic device that um, let's just grab anybody here, push this on the patient's face and start squeezing. And especially in the, the hopefully long gone mindset, uh, but we know that it's still out there a little bit. It was just, uh, I know they taught you in class that uh, you should be breathing one breath every five seconds, but that's not what we do here out on the mean streets. And I'm going to tell you that it's, you wanted to squeeze and squeeze. And the, these, uh, you know, nervous young people are, their first experiences with it are a one-to-one -one ratio. And they're going shh, 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 until the patient's inflating, like they're going to burst the stretcher straps and start <laughs> bouncing up inside the ambulance. Like there was human zeppelin and that and, but then when that's the way you were introduced to this it's tough to unlearn that when people now come in and go like wow we know a lot more about this and what you're doing isn't just not optimal it is actively hurting this patient and we it is really important that we get some of this stuff down just the timing and the and the ventilations so uh so yeah i think <laughs> uh early career trauma is a significant uh, uh problem for people yeah i agree um also one of the things that i do notice and you point that out is we tend to pawn this this skill off on the most junior person i don't know why that is but it always seems to me that anytime I'm in a recess in the back of the ambulance, um, I'm looking up and it's usually the most over-caffeinated 18-year-old um, with these really wide eyes are sitting there squeezing the bag. And, uh, you know, that that can be harmful to our patients, not because they intend to do it, but I, I really, you know, I want to impress upon people out there that aren't familiar with, you know, initial training they're not doing this every day. This isn't like free throws in basketball practice. They're not shooting 50 a day. They're not then using a bag mount mask at every time they go to class. They probably should, but they're not. And you have to have some, first and foremost, I think you have to have, if you're a paramedic, I think you have to have some active control over what 
your EMTs are doing with you as part of the team. And you have to be able to recognize and coach them through. What do you think? A hundred percent. I'm fortunate enough to work in a system where our EMTs and our paramedics, um, as part of a fire-based service, we really do work and train together. Anything that's done is everybody, you know, all hands on deck. And um, we look at a lot of the, even with um, advanced airway procedures and, and ventilation techniques, we look at the cognitive offloading, you know, it, we, we want the paramedic to be focusing on the stuff that the, the paramedic absolutely needs to. So um, setup of the equipment and management of the equipment, number one, all of that gets done by our EMTs. Again, we're fortunate enough to train them and get them familiar with that in the first place. Um, but the other thing is that we make sure that we use effective crew resource management. And for us, we try very hard to make sure it's a natural part of the culture of our service so that they're, they're, the paramedic expects that the EMT has their back and is watching out for them if the paramedic is missing something or not doing something, um, and that the EMT will, you know, uh, pace, probe, alert, challenge, or, or, or give an emergency intervention. You know, we, we teach them how to, how to intervene. Um, and that the other way goes, like you say, if the paramedic is supervising, um, you know, a newer EMT or is saying like, hey, you need to slow your ventilations down, that nobody gets out of joint. We're all there to do the job the best that we can. And honestly, we're emergency providers. So it's easy. It's just part of the human condition for us to get in there and want to push a little harder, bag a little faster, because we see a patient in crisis and we're trying to do something. And it is not natural for us to slow it down, work on our technique, just make sure that your hand is in a the correct position rather than a, a forceful mash that mask down on the patient's face. Absolutely. And, you know, stress and cognitive load are, are huge things. Um, and I think we're just scratching the surface in this profession about learning about it and having to address it. That could be a whole nother episode, series (laughs) of episodes. Um, I've already got some ideas in my head, but anyway, so let's talk to the new, the, let's talk to the audit. Let's talk to the new EMT out there, the brand new Mm -hmm. paramedic um, who may have gotten taught the wrong way in this um, or maybe isn't as confident with this piece of equipment as they should be. Um, I was kind of thinking maybe we go front to back. We talk about the pits, the pitfalls and the, the shortcomings and how do we overcome that? And I think the biggest thing, the, one of the first things that everybody notices or th- that I notice with people is holding the mask and mask seal. And I see that this is a big issue. So what are your thoughts? What do you like to do? How do you like to do this in your practice? And how do you teach your, your students? <clears throat> Well, I think you're talking about two different challenges. If it's something along the lines of, um, you know, a, a, say a paramedic and an EMT, or, you know, it doesn't even matter the levels, honestly. Um, but, you know, two providers who don't normally work and train closely together. Um, so they're going to have to be some fine tuning and some corrections on the fly. 
And that's going to be more of a challenge. The preferable would be, regardless if you're within the same um, organization, you know, um, mutual aid groups or groups that work normally together, hopefully will train together. And, and maybe this podcast will be an impetus for you to go out there and, and do a little bit more of this. Um, but um, when you get the opportunity to train together, make sure that for all of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, we're not differentiating, well, this is in the classroom and that's what's on the dirty, you know, that's what's on in the streets. Um, when we're, teach it the right way. Like if you can't use this in the streets, don't teach it that way. That's fine. Um, right. And if I teach it to you this way, that's the way I expect you to do it. And know that if I walk in and, you know, I'm your paramedic, I expect everybody to be on this. So when I say things like it's preferable if, we if we're using a mask, to use two providers, then we'll use two providers, even if it's a little bit awkward or it feels funny. And if I'm I'm in the back and people are ventilating too fast, I'm going to ask you count out loud. Well, you think I can't bag because I you know I have to count. I mean that that's a that's a classroom thing for a brand new. No, it isn't. It's a thing to make sure that we're still doing it the right way. Um, and and so a lot of that training, I think, is is to make sure that you've got that culture of. We, we, you know, train the way we're going to do it in the street and do it in the street the way that we train. And, and that way we can focus on a lot of these tools and techniques like, um, you know, not the, uh, you know, not the CE technique, but the, you know, the uh, 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 modification so that if you have to do it one handed, you're not just sealing one side of the face. Uh, if you have the opportunity, use two providers to, to really genuinely make the grip and not just mash the mask down on the patient's face, for example. Yeah. Um, that was a, uh, we had Jim DeCanto on a couple months ago and, uh, you know, Dr. DeCanto, we just let him run. And, uh, one of the <laughs> things that I thought that was really cool that he teaches now is that almost that power grip that you kind of alluded to. I know everybody's been brought up on the CE technique, but it, it was amazing that, and I, and I played with it, you know, on a mannequin now, and I'm, I'm doing it in the field, just rotating your, your, your hand so that your those three fingers are on the front of the jaw, as opposed to the side of the jaw makes a huge difference. Um, you know, you, you, it's a really, it's a better grip if you have to do it one-handed. Um, but I think for new providers, I think the, the best way to do this is that, you know, get your the thinner eminences along the sides of the mask, hold it with a jaw thrust and have somebody else squeeze the bag. And I think we, those are, those are techniques that I don't think we teach in EMT school. And I think we should. Absolutely. And, and you know what, for those that are out of EMT school now, this is the kind of thing that should be practiced in a refresher in regular drills, whenever you wind up having them, whatever continuing education like this, we, we're, you know, we have the opportunity to talk about it now, but you know, people should be using this podcast as sort of the awareness level of education and say, yeah, you know what, we need to be doing this and breaking out the, the, the mannequin, the CPR mannequin, everybody's got one, the BVM, everybody's got one. And, um, you know, find the way that you can make that grip work for you and, you know, bring a couple of, a couple of other people there. Cause, because seeing and feeling is believing you, you know, get a little bit of that initial finger fumbling out of the way. And it, you're going to be convinced. I believe you're going to be convinced. You'll see it's a better way to seal. Yeah. Another, another little trick that I've been doing that I like with people is I, I have them stretch the mask out, like kind of pull it out laterally and then put it on their face without the BVM attached, then put the BVM on. 
um, because then it kind of seals better. It kind of pulls that tissue in closer to the face and it kind of holds on a little bit, just a little bit better. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, absolutely. It, it's crucial also then to, uh, you know, to identify those mask leaks as you're going, you may need to, as you're rolling down the road or, you know, your parts of your hand are getting tired or you're taking over from somebody else, whatever it might be, you know, identify when you get that air leak and adjust your grip or position. And depending on the situation that you're in, you may want to let other provider, another provider know that this, we're having a really hard time getting a good mask seal. Again, you want to be confident that you're not getting a good mask seal for a reason other than you're just not practiced enough. You want to be able to say, yeah, no, I'm doing some of the things that we're talking about here and it's not working. So we may need to move to something, something else, be it a superglottic airway, whether that's something you're going to put in or somebody else is, um, and, uh, you know, or whatever might be appropriate. But, but don't be afraid to change things up or to say, hey, we need to move on to something else. The mm-hmm. last thing that you want to do is be in a situation where, gosh, I don't know, you've got a patient who ha- normally wears dentures but doesn't have them. So it's really difficult to get a mask seal or they've got some other kind of trauma or deformity to their face. And by gosh, we're just, you know, putting on the BVM show for the people around us. We, you know, identify, hey, this is a problem. We need to try something else. Let's, let's bring in another tool or technique. That's a great point. Um, also, while you were talking about it, you, you touched on adjuncts, and I think that's something, you know, that that's an aspect of BVM ventilation that I think a lot of times gets ignored. Um, you go, how many times you go into a house, or I don't know about you, but I, it's a common thing down by me um, in my shop where, you know, you'll go up on scene and somebody's got the mask on and they're bagging and patient's unconscious and they're having a hard time bagging and you're looking and it's kind of like, well, they're, they're doing all right. And then you see like, there's no adjuncts, there's no NPA and there's no two NPAs, there's no OPA. And you're, you know, you're like, Hey guys, these are, these are really important tools. And I think, I think they get overlooked in the, in the, the, the rush to get the mask on or to ventilate the patient. But what we want is good ventilations. We want effective ventilations. And adjuncts are a really quick and easy way for at the foundation to get the tongue off the back of the throat, give yourself some less resistance and make it easier for you to ventilate. I couldn't agree more. And my eyes were really open to the extent of that in my own agency. Again, your, your mileage may vary. Some people may be thinking, listening to this and thinking, well, like, of course, everybody I know drops the, you know, drops an adjunct right away, but in a lot of places they don't. And we were doing uh, Jim Ducanto's salad technique training for our, all of our crews. And I was surprised that so many of our EMTs and paramedics had the mon- mentality that there was no point in using a an adjunct, a basic adjunct, we don't like calling them, nor oral or nasal pharyngeal airway, um, because we were moving towards a supraglottic airway or an intubation anyway. So it was a wasted step. And I had to explain that the the, the many functions of it, you know, we're starting because if we wind up bagging this patient for an extended period of time, either because, hey, you know what? The bagging turns out that's all we need. So that's where we're keeping it. And we don't need to move on to other airways. 
then okay. Um, so, or, or it's going to be a while for the intubation setup, or it's a difficult intubation. They're going to need to break, set up more tools and techniques or, you know, get, get that thing in there. Um, but even if we're moving on to other tools and techniques like endotracheal intubation, we're still using, say, that oral airway to scoop to the side, scoop some material out to help clear the airway out, twist it sideways to help keep the jaw open. There, there, you know, it, it's not a wasted step. It's a fundamental step for all of this. And in the end, for the paramedics who brought up situations where, you know, okay, we needed to have the adjunct out to be able to have enough room to place the uh, endotracheal tube or what have you. Okay. How, how long does that take? Put it on, make it a part of your normal routine. Because even if you run into those rare situations where you got to pop the thing out, flip, it's out. Okay. And it can go right back in. And that's, yeah. you know, and it, it does do what we, what we need it to do. I mean, the biggest, the biggest airway obstruction you're going to see in the field is the tongue. And if you can get the tongue off the back of the throat, even a millimeter, you're going to get air down there. You're going to get oxygen down there. And that's what we want to do. Um, you know, I, I've seen people, you know, I, I, you know, I've told them like, go ahead, put another nasal in. They're like, we can't put more than one nasal airway in. I'm like, sure can <laughs> just go ahead and do it. Put two nasals in, put a, put an oral and two nasals in, but put yourself in a position where you can ventilate the most effective way without having all these obstacles. And if we can take some of these obstacles away, we're going to get better results. And I believe that the, I, I realize that not every call is going to be predictable, not just because of the patient, not just because of the context, but in many systems across the U.S., because we don't know who's going to be showing up or when they're going to be showing up sure. or what they're going to be walking in with. Like, I get it. But the more that you can establish the routine for those first couple of minutes, like, um, for example, um, in, in my service, we're doing a lot of this fundamental training on airway management <clears throat> and we started talking about, uh, well, a lot of these things. Yes, I do want the, um, the airway adjuncts in right away. Um, I want for us uh, end tidal CO2 uh, monitoring to be a part. As soon as the bag valve mask comes out, we're going to be attaching that as well. Um, for us, uh, anytime the bag valve mask comes out, we also put uh, nasal cannula and flow extra oxygen via the nasal cannula. Now, I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes, but I'm just letting everybody know what, what it is that we do in our service. And that's the immediate expectation. So the EMT gets the BVM and is going to be setting up all of this stuff. If it's an unusual circumstance where something can't or should not be done, then that's going to be the exception. But they don't have to wait for the paramedic to direct them. They don't have to look around. There's not, well, should I or shouldn't I? And we're wasting time with unnecessary decision-making. This is the standard stuff. And it also allowed us to put engineering controls in place. So we package all of the materials that we're going to be using with our BVM right in with the BVM. So any EMT or paramedic who grabs the BVM knows in one shot, they're going to have everything they need. Not only does that make it easier for them to do their job, but honestly, it's a prompt for them like, oh, that's right. We have these different things. 
I should be using these different things because, hey, man, we're all human. And we all three o'clock in the morning on a dark and stormy night by the side of the road. Sometimes it's easy to forget that oral airway, you know, when you're yeah. you're trying to manage everything. That's else a, that's a really by. that's a really cool idea. So go into that more about how. So you're you're talking about actually setting your stuff up for success, putting all the things that you're going to need for a specific, um, you know, for ventilation um, all together. So what is, what is a typical, what does that look like for your place? Um, well, for us, <clears throat> we've got uh, end title CO2 monitoring. So that's going to go. Um, and, and part of our training for this is that um, end title CO2 monitoring goes with the BVM. We try to emphasize for our EMTs and paramedics that that is a BVM device, not an intubation device, because we use it for a lot more things than just checking whether, you know, a intubation thumbs up or thumbs down. So that gets attached early on. And because we package it with every time the BVM comes out in practice or in real life, our EMTs and paramedics get really good at it. They don't look at it as an extra thing. They look at it as just, it pops right on. And now, furthermore, we're looking into uh, a bag valve mask uh, that will have that integrated right into it. We also have... Um, we used to, and it looks like we're going to be doing it again, have um, impedance threshold devices, the ITDs uh, on there as well. Now, those only get used for cardiac arrest, but we, right. we package them in there. Um, but we also used the little blinky light on there. And for, for a while, um, then it became hard to get. Um, we also had little timing lights that went along with our bag valve masks that also were integrated right in there so that people didn't have to count out loud because we found that our firefighters were just getting embarrassed by doing that. So, okay, just follow along with a little <laughs> blinky light that blinks every five seconds. We could do that and everybody still feels, you know, manly. And um, uh, so we had that. <laughs> Uh, and, and then again, with the um, the nasal cannula, uh, we wind up doing a pre-oxygenation with the nasal cannula. Um, so we have our EMTs and paramedics. So the, the nasal cannula, the adult nasal cannula is packaged inside the bag with the BVM. The adult one is in the adult BVM. The pediatric one is in the pediatric BVM. And again, it's uh, it's a prompt right there. So before they put the BVM on, they're going to slap that uh, nasal cannula on as well. And we have the supplemental oxygen. Again, as Jim Ducanto was talking about in a, in a previous episode, we do the same thing. Um, the supplemental oxygen is going straight into the patient's hypopharynx via the, via the nasal cannula. So uh, the only thing that we don't have packaged literally in the BVM um, already uh, are the oral and nasal um, adjuncts, and they are literally right next to it. So if you take the BVM bag out with this stuff in it, um, all the other stuff is is right next to it. And I had a conversation with our supplier and just said, hey, can you just package all of this stuff right in for us before it even gets to us? And they said, well, because of um, FDA regulations, we can't attach anything because then we're technically we're making a new device, but we can absolutely throw the stuff in separately. You just have to assemble it. Um, uh, so again, it's, it's worked great for us. And we're, we're looking at new devices that have things a little bit more integrated to streamline the whole process. And, I, and to, to, to providers who, for whom this is uh, you know news, it probably sounds like, oh my gosh, they open it and there's stuff all over the place and they're putting all this stuff together. It absolutely does not work that way. People are used to it and it happens. Bing, bang, boom, they're on it. Wow. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, it's not that 
it's not that far fetched if you think about we're all we already do this, guys. We, you know, IVs. Think of an IV setup. Like every, you just pull it out of the bag. It's all there. It's everything you need. That we're just doing it with ventilations now. You do it with an intubation setup. We, it's just a ventilation setup. That's what this is. Absolutely. And again, you know, we're, we're <clears throat> as I see a lot, I'm learning a little more about performance improvement for the system, for the individuals, you know, what could we do for engineering controls like this, you know, stuff that we could put together with, with right. the, the, the devices and stuff. Um, again, I find that the more that we practice this regularly and we make it just a normal part, the bag valve mask comes out, man, all of this stuff is done. It's more of that cognitive offloading. It's like tying your shoe. You don't you don't sit down to tie your shoe and go, okay, the rabbit goes around the tree, the rabbit comes out of the hole. You're 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 thinking about other stuff, you're doing other stuff in your hands, man. It's muscle memory. And that is exactly what it has become for us, so that we're focusing on the the individual things that are unique about this call, the individual challenges for this individual patient and this nasal cannula and all this other stuff, as you mentioned before, man, it's just setting us up for success. We're just, our hands are just doing it. Yeah. It, and, and you'd be, you'd be surprised at, you know, I've seen this in action and I've seen this in you know other places that operate this way. And you're right. The cognitive load and the stress goes down and you find that things are relaxed and your heart rate's down and you're better able to deal with the patient. You're better able to deal with the stress of the environment. And it's nicer. I mean, I hate to say nice <laughs> because it's usually this is a really bad thing and we're, we're trying to help somebody who's really sick, but we've all been on those calls where, you know, everybody's amped up the pulse, you know, our pulse rates are through the roof. Everybody's got tunnel vision stuff's getting thrown around the back of the ambulance. And that's not how we want to operate. What we want to do is we want to operate calmly, professionally, with a minimum of bandwidth devoted to the things that we know have to be there. We want to focus on the patient and the overall patient wellness. And all this is doing is just setting you up for that because you don't have to go look for the nasal cannula. You don't have to ask the, you know, the brand new guy where the, you know, where the the cannula is on their truck or where the end title sensor is, or, you know, where, where's the mask or where is this? It's all there. It's all set up. All you literally have to do is reach in the bag, pull it out. Everything's there for you to use, put it together and go to work. No doubt. And we really do find that it, it as you say, it just, it makes everybody a lot more comfortable that they can focus on, you know, whatever the unique challenges are for this, um, you know, for this individual patient. And it took a little bit to, to break out of some of that stuff, as you say, that's taught in, you know, in the initial textbooks and, um, you know, in the initial classes. And I, I personally find it more of a challenge for people who've been doing this for a while, like me, who had some of those traumatic experiences early on who were screamed at, you will always do it this way. And, you know, uh, that, that these rules were somewhere carved in stone. And, and hey, man, we were doing the best we could at the time. I don't blame my teachers early on they, and my preceptors. That was the best teaching techniques that they were aware of at the time. It was the best way that we knew how to do things. But our research is getting so much better. And, 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 and I mean, research, not in a, a weird, 
people wearing white jackets with just clipboards who have never seen the inside of an ambulance. But I'm talking about real people, real medics, who, real docs who know the systems, right. taking a really close look at what works, and what doesn't work, and what we're doing that we could be tweaked, that we could do it better. And that is the concept that I don't think just was not around when when a lot of us were learning 20, 25, 30 or more years ago. There, there was no mention of that one day we might do things a little bit better. No, I, I and I think that that's the biggest part of this. What we've learned in this profession is, you know, we're starting to look at science. We're starting to look at, hey, why do we do this? Why does it work? You know, um, Ed on the show, Ed is really big on epinephrine because he says we've been giving it for 50 years. We don't know why. We don't know what it is. We don't know how much we should give. And we're still not there. And that, but we're looking, but at least we're studying. And this is an important part of moving the profession forward. Um, we have to learn what doesn't work. It's silly to just do stuff for the sake of doing them. And I think that's where we need to go with the future. And again, that can be a whole nother episode. So we're, we're I'm warning you, you're growing episodes here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We just, just write them, write them down, write them down. They're budding off like yeast. Um, well, and, and I, I appreciate uh, very honestly, I appreciate that's why podcasts like yours are, are bringing this kind of information out there and making making these ideas accessible and i and i hope that people listening are listening to some of the stuff and even some of the things maybe they haven't heard of before or they heard of but weren't quite sure it was going to work for them i i hope we're explaining ways where they can they can bring some of this stuff together and actually apply it in their own um in their own service oh thanks i i, I really love podcasts i think podcasts has re have really kind of guided my education to deep dive into other stuff because you, you listen to something, you're like, wow, that sounds good. And then, you know, then you listen to it. You're like, that's pretty cool. Why don't we do that? And then the next thing you do is you engage your medical director, you know, you're out of competency and go, Hey, do you know this guy? Have you heard of this? We could do this. And you'd be surprised at how it's, it's almost like a gateway into research. It's a gateway into the science that, now we can actually affect some change. So that hopefully that's that's what we get from it. So um, so we've talked about the juice. Let's talk about the squeeze. Um, the bag part of the bag valve mask. Um, this is something, you know, let's say we 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 let's say you've bought into the whole thing with us with adjuncts and mask seal and practicing over and over again. But if you're not doing this effectively, you're probably not doing good. And I would almost say you can really hurt somebody with, with squeezing a bag. Um, I, we, uh, Dr. Merlin was our medical director for a long time. Uh, he calls it the bag of death. Um, <laughs> it's a little, it's a little graphic. It's a little, it's a little, uh, I guess, black and white, but when you think about it, we can do a lot of damage with this thing. Um, and I was shocked when I first started looking into this, I looked at, I went to manufacturers' websites and I looked at, you know, the, the specifications for these things. And I was shocked that, you know, while a normal tidal volume for a normal size adult is probably about 450, 500 milliliters, these bags are a lot more than that. Um, almost two liters in some examples. Yeah. Yeah. And now, honestly, you're, you're inspiring me to open up a YouTube channel called BVM's gone wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're, you're right. And you know, we mentioned before 
and I do believe it, that a lot of what we were taught back in the day um, that has persisted and, and, and some of it's still hanging around, <clears throat> um, we didn't know any better. Um, but some of it, it bothers me that I was not taught a particular way, you know, from 30 years ago. And one of the things that I wish that more was, was in more basic CPR classes, let alone EMT and paramedic classes, is I often say to people, okay, you take a, um, you know, you take a deep breath right now. It's like you're breathing, your patient is breathing. Is that positive or negative pressure? And the answer, of course, is it's negative, negative. pressure right? You have chest excursion, um, your diaphragm lowers, it lowers the pressure and, and atmospheric pressure pushes the air right into your lungs, right? So we lower the pressure in our chest, um, but we have to think about how our A, B, and C are all tied together, right? So we're lowering the pressure in our chest. It not only helps draw air in, but it also facilitates blood return back to the chest, you know, where the heart is. More fluid into the heart, better blood return, better circulation. Now we flip it and you're going to ventilate. Um, and before we even get to overventilate, you're just going to ventilate normally positive pressure or negative pressure. Positive. Right. Now we're still getting that air into the lungs, but now we've switched to that positive pressure and we are um, increasing the pressure in the chest, increasing that intrathoracic pressure. So we are to some degree reducing blood flow to the chest. Now here's where we get a balance. You want to have some positive pressure um, in, in situations where the patient uh, doesn't have a lot of circulation compromise, right? Where the primary problem is, is ventilation. And then we're, um, you know, a little bit of PEEP or positive end expiratory pressure. If you've got a device or, you know, some positive pressure at the very least is going to be good. It's going to help open up those alveoli, the working part of the lungs, they're gonna they're gonna pop open, and we're gonna have better gas exchange with the capillaries because you already got good circulation. But if the patient's circulation is compromised in any way because they're already leaning, you know, starting to go down that shock spiral, or they're in cardiac arrest, so they're about as compromised as you can get, even with good CPR. Mm -hmm. Now we've got a problem that even if we're overventilating just a little bit, we're really really reducing the blood return to the heart. So you can be getting all the air you want in those lungs, people. You're overventilating and there's not going to be any circulation to the lungs that you're filling up with air. Like I say, like you're, you're trying to uh, pump up a basketball. So still a relatively, I think, simple, but really important concept that we illustrated how all of these things are tied together um, in what, two minutes and that's something that we need to make sure that not just that everybody is taught early on, but that this is what we're thinking about whenever we're ventilating, that maybe the way that we're ventilating is going to be adjusted, not only on the size of the patient, but what else is going on with the patient? Is this a patient with pretty good circulation, but we need to focus on, you know, the ventilation, or is this patient with circulatory compromise where we really have to watch out, um, especially if we're going to be moving towards intubation. So, you know, paramedics out there, think about the fact that we're, we're further compromising this patient's circulation 
by ventilating them and trying to pre-oxygenate them. And you got a, you got somebody on the bag, squeeze, 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 right? And they're, they're cutting down their circulation even more. And then we have the potential maybe to use medications to facilitate intubation. They're going to drop the pressure even more. And then we're going to stimulate this patient when we're intubating, and that's going to compromise the circulation even more. So great. Now we've got a plastic tube down the patient's throat, but we've pushed them, pushed them down the shock spiral just got to think about this stuff. And it's all interrelated. And again, these foundational things are going to have a big, a big impetus or a big influence on the success of those advanced procedures. Um, one of the things that I see with new EMTs, especially is, you know, like you said, the squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. I see it just the the insistence, like they hold the bag with two hands, like a football and they squeeze it until there's nothing left in it. Um, I, I, that's a, that's a problem because again, you're looking at a normal tidal volume of about 500. I, I know don't at me folks. I know you're like, well, you have to calculate it six million. Yeah, I know. I, but <laughs> let's just say 500 for, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, that's three to four times the amount that you should be giving. Um, what do you think you're doing to lung tissue? If you've ever had a chance to do a, a dissection lab, or if you've ever got a chance to actually, you know, appreciate lungs in an anatomy and physiology lab, you're going to be really surprised at how fragile they are. Mm -hmm. And, and that overinflation, just like if you did with a balloon and you just kept blowing it up and deflating it and blowing up and deflating it, it's going to get stressed. It's going to get damaged. Um, that tissue is going to get leaky. Um, it's going to bleed. And all those areas that are damaged are not going to exchange gas. And, you know, my, my thing is, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk, I, I argue with people about all the time on the internet is, you know, the people who say paramedics shouldn't intubate because outcomes are poorer for people who are intubated in the field. <laughs> and my thing is like, well, maybe it's what we do after we intubate them. Maybe it's the bagging. Maybe that's why they get sicker. Maybe it's the you know, the two aggressive ventilations, or it's the other stuff that we haven't done. How is a plastic tube necessarily bad? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And there are certainly going to be times when intubation is the airway adjunct that is going to work best for patients with, say, really poor lung compliance. And, and we're going to need to have some of those raised ventilation pressures, um, again, to help open up those alveoli and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but we need to be able to say, well, I looked at this patient and I said, this is what we need to do, being careful to balance that with the potential for overpressure and all of the challenges, like you say, that I think, you know, you're going to put a BVM in somebody's hands. We don't want to scare anybody about it. We're professionals. We just make sure that we know how to use this tool properly and what can go wrong if we don't really practice. This is not basic. These are fundamentals. And if you're going to, this is going to be the, the fundamental device of airway and ventilation. And as we've described circulation, then you really have to know how this stuff ties together. That's, that's really important. So, so let's talk about some best practices. What you got a brand new EMT on the truck and you're, you know, they tell you, geez, I, how should I do this? What, what do you say? What, what works for you? What I, I tend to say, like two fingers and a thumb, uh, squeeze the bag until your fingers meet. And that usually is about third of the bag. And that gives you what you need. And then watch for a chest rise. Once you get a chest rise, you're good. 
Um, how do you do it? Um, it, it depends on the size of the hands um, yeah, that, that of the person that's bagging. <laughs> um, but but I like I like your your technique that you talk about. You know, just using the fingers. Um, what I try to emphasize is when they say bag until you see chest rise. They nobody ever meant ventilate until chest rise stops. Nobody ever meant ventilate until <laughs> maximum inflation. And then the patient's, you know, overpressure valve in their ear, it's going to go. <laughs> um, it really is only until you just see chest rise. Again, your mileage may vary and there may be, you know, little, little changes that you want to adjust on that. But starting out, as you say, you new EMT, hands a shaken, um, but I need them to be ventilating. Ventilate until just until you see chest rise, and then we can modify it from there. Yeah, and, and another thing too, and this is where you know paramedics engage your EMTs in the stuff you're carrying. That end tidal monitor, that capnography waveform, can give you a really good guide as to how well you're you're ventilating your patient. It's going to tell you your rate. It's going to tell you. Uh, whether it's an obstructed waveform, whether it's a normal waveform, what kind of CO2 you're getting, you can get a lot of information out of that. And you can say to them, look, take a breath, you know, give them a breath, see how this works, you know, keep them here. This is a good rate. This is where we want to be. Um, it, it's another tool that you can use. Um, you guys use the blinky lights, right? We, they've, they come and go depending on how well we can get our hands on them. But I, I prefer them as a simple tool to keep people on track for timing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, um, for us, because we always have, uh, even for our EMTs have uh, LifePak 15s um, available, they've got entitled CO2 monitoring available. So they also should be using though the entitled CO2 to guide their ventilations and they understand, you know, um, how they, how to use that to make sure that they're not ventilating too fast um, or too slowly. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, just that, that, too much is dangerous. We want to just to see that chest rise. The minute you see that chest rise start to come up, that's good. Stop. You've got enough inflation. You're given hundred percent oxygen. It's okay. Um, peep valves. Yes. The <laughs> <laughs> um, um, for, for the, 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 basic differentiation that we make. And then of course there's, you know, more training goes into it uh, specifically. Um, but we typically start with, um, uh, and we're just actually, we're just bringing this on board fully in our department. <clears throat> um, but basically if they're in cardiac arrest, we're moving towards the, uh, ITD or impedance threshold device, okay. um, to, uh, to help maximize the circulation for reasons we were talking about before right, without getting right. into all the mechanics of the ITD, it basically makes sure that, um, you know, we've got a little bit of that extra negative pressure helps blood return to the heart in low, low circulation. Do you kind of think that that device was, didn't get its fair shake when it first came around? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was the, um, uh, ACLS, uh, national faculty for our state, um, and, and got a chance to really talk to some of the people who did the initial research and, um, uh, saw early on for me, uh, my opinion was that this wasn't just uh, a gadget that somebody was hawking, that this was something that genuinely made a difference. And I, I still believe that, um, 
But then uh, most of our people, even when we were putting it on there, saw the blinky light on it and they thought that, well, this is just some giant thing to tell us how how often to to (laughs) ventilate. And even though we would explain it and we would go over it when we would do training, you know, it would take those kind of uh, those kind of reminders. Right. Um, uh, but the flip side of the ITD is um, a PEEP valve, positive end expiratory pressure. And again, the the working part of the lungs, really what we're focusing on here, you know, and I love this conversation about the BVM because for once we're not talking about advanced airway and all the different plastic tubes that you could stick down somebody's throat because there's they're sexier, honestly. And and I, I love tools and techniques related to that too, but they tend to ignore the only working part of the lung. Ventilation does not occur in the trachea. Yeah, we got to get down to them, but man, we got to focus on the alveoli. And if a lot of the patient's alveoli are collapsed or, or filled, you know, we got to, we got to recruit them. We got to bring them on board. It's not about pushing more air down in there. It's about, you know, elevating the pressure a little bit in a controlled way to pop those suckers open. Um, so that the, the gas exchange is more available to the capillaries on those little, you know, grape sacks all the way down at the bottom of the lungs. It's a, again, a fundamental concept of the working part of the lung is the alveoli. That's what we care about. And, and what I have to say goes along with that is a very important word. And I know we could get nitpicky about it, but when I teach, I emphasize to people, hyperventilation is always bad. Never hyperventilate. And some people get annoyed. And, you know, again, we have a discussion. I don't want to go down the whole rabbit hole here, but I say oxygenation. Okay. If you're going to give the patient several ventilations in rapid sequence, because you're going to be oxygenating the alveoli. Yeah, that's cool. Absolutely. That's a thing that we do. But hyperventilation is just ventilating the patient too fast and typically too much. So, um, for the reasons that we already explained, uh, the word hyperventilation, I try and steer people away from it because, you know, they think, oh, hyperventilation is good. More is good. More is better. And it leads us down this road towards, um, uh, if not harming the patient. And as you described, there's a significant chance of that, then at least not helping the patient nearly as much as we could be. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I think people, you know, you, you hear this a lot or you hear that. I used to hear this a lot where they're like, okay, hyperventilate the patient. And that just meant squeeze, 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 squeeze. Don't allow exhalation. We're just <laughs> inflating. We're just inflating the patient. I, and they're not going, you know, physiologically, nothing's going to happen that way. You, you still have to have gas exchange. And I think, like I said, we we get away from this. And this is another thing, a fundamental thing. Why are we putting air into the lungs anyway? Why are we putting oxygen in the lungs? There's a reason for it. It's not just to make them go up and down. That's the simple part. Um, the other part of it is the gas exchange. And this is all about maintaining gas exchange. Um, while we're on gases, let's talk about pressures because we're already talking about too, squeezing too fast. Um, right along the line with the squeezing too fast is squeezing too hard. And you know, this can cause some badness if you're really giving that forceful insufflation, um, especially if you don't have, well, if you have an advanced airway in, you can really hurt lung tissue mm-hmm. um, because too much pressure is probably not good. We don't know at what point that damages lungs for how long nobody's really, I don't know that anybody's really looked at that outside of the ICU or with a BVM. Um, but 
you know, I want to impress upon people, even when you have these adjuncts, when you, when you don't have that advanced airway in, there's another tube you have to worry about. That's the esophagus. And at about 20 centimeters of water pressure, um, you open that sphincter up and you get gas going into that stomach. And after a while, that's going to come back to haunt you because whatever's <laughs> in that stomach is going to come back up if you displace it enough with the gas you're putting down the patient. Uh, now there are, I was stunned in a class a couple of weeks ago that someone or that someone pointed out to me, they're like, what's the dial on the BVM for? And I was like, oh, you don't know. Oh, hmm. that's a manometer. And they're like, well, and I'm like, oh no, this is awesome. And you know, that one, that sent me off a tangent about how cool it was. Um, we need to be careful about the pressures we give when we ventilate. Uh, manom manometers are great tools, but not everybody has a manometer on their, on their BVM. Um, so what, what, what do you guys do? What do you teach? What are, what's, what's some pearls that you think would uh, be good for pressure wise? Right now, we're looking at, like I say, we're looking to change over our BVMs and, and we're looking to add manometers for the exact same reason that, that you're talking about. <clears throat> um, I see the, the source of the problem. We already started to describe it with, you know, people misunderstanding that ventilation and seeing chest rises to maximum inflation. But, you know, think about the way that many of us were taught or many of us have taught myself included. I'm a, I'm a sinner as well, um, <laughs> where, you know, you're teaching people, whether in CPR, you know, two-person professional rescuer uh, CPR um, or, uh, you know, BVM, the instructor needs to see the lungs inflate, whether it's a closed chest mannequin or an open chest mannequin, you know, intubation mannequin where you can see the lungs. But, you know, and, and so the student wants the instructor to see those lungs inflate and the instructor wants to see those lungs inflate. So what do we do every single time we train? We inflate the heck out of those lungs. And when I realized we were doing this, I started having the students um, when they were bagging, um, you know, I would have somebody else do the seal and I would have the student bring a hand around on the chest or on the lungs. I would do it as an instructor. Um, if other students were doing it again, I would, I would have them feel just for chest rise so that when we're training, I realize you're not always going to have that third arm to put on the patient's chest. But when we're training, we're training just to that chest rise. And I say to them exactly like you're saying, think of the pressure that it's going to take, especially for bigger patients to get to that chest rise. Before that chest rise happens, the alveoli are starting to fill up. They're starting to open up. And yeah, we want enough pressure that they, they pop open. Um, but to move all of that chest material, that's taken some pressure. When you start going above that, as you described, you can start damaging lung tissues because the, the person that we're ventilating is likely on the floor not because their lungs are super healthy, um, right. but also, as you say, that, that, you know, that esophageal sphincter, man, the air is only going to have, that extra air is only going to have one other place. The lungs don't pop. That extra air is only going to have one other place to go. And it's going in that stomach and it's going to come back and it's going to bring friends with it. <laughs> yeah. And, and those are, those are what airway nightmares are uh, started with. Uh, yeah, I, I I think pressure and volume are really really important. We don't, and there's not enough. I, I don't think there's been enough studies on this stuff, and I don't think that 
you know, uh, we do enough research in EMS to begin with, but we, we really need to look at these things. And I think we need to see why, how these things are actually hurting patients. Um, and I think we need to bring it down to the, the initial entry-level classes that, you know, we can start them from the beginning, learning good habits and learning good practices from the start. And I think that's a really important thing for the future. No doubt. No doubt at all. I, I think that's, um, you know, I, I think it's, we underestimate the importance of training and training together whenever it's possible. Mm. And um, we underestimate too, I think, our power to use engineering controls like, yeah, man, like having a manometer, whether it's something you stick on there, but you get really used to sticking it on there quickly, or it's happens to be built into the BVM, but, you know, um, or, or having all of the other stuff that you might want to use with the BVM um, packaged all in there. There's, there's a lot that we can do before the call to set ourselves up for success. Initial education, that's better practice. That's purposeful and uh, engineering, engineering controls that, that set us up for success. And that, that's where I think, um, you know, then people are really going to shine on the call and they're going to come away from it, those, these kind of calls and go, yeah, wow, that really, that really worked. I think it made a difference. And, and know that it is, man. I, I've been doing this long enough that, listen, I, I don't know every listener's individual service or their destination hospital or any of that, but I can tell you, I've seen too much of this from working in hospitals, from working in ICUs and working in the street. This is the stuff that makes a difference in patients' lives. And, and unfortunately, we don't get enough feedback from hospitals all over the place, but, I but I, I'm here to tell you that it, this kind of stuff is worth the effort. This makes a difference for people. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. You know, I think in a lot of ways, EMS, we kind of forget that we do have an impact down the road and, you know, because we don't see it, you know, we're doing stuff and we don't realize three days later what happens in the ICU or six days later or day seven or what have you. So you've alluded to your department kind of looking at some different designs of BBMs. What does a perfect BBM look to you? What would you, if you, if you could... If I could give you a, a wish and you could have the perfect BVM, what does it have on it? What, what, do you, what does it look like? For me, it's going to be, <clears throat> as you said, smaller, not only because, hey, smaller is better and smaller is probably a little bit cheaper, but the ones that we have now are bigger than virtually any of our patients need. And, and maybe if that means breaking off a size that's called, you know, extra large or the, the bariatric BVM, then, you know, for patients who somehow have bigger lungs. Um, okay. You know, but uh, I see smaller in volume overall. Uh, and I see some of the equipment that we've described as integrated, a manometer and tidal CO2 and a simple light that can blink time to say one breath every five. Um, and I would be happy to split the difference between the, you know, one breath every six recommendation for ventilation um, and what normally happens in the back of the ambulance, which is <laughs> as you described, you know, they look like they're trying to pump up a bicycle tube. Yeah. And, and that's the little things, those little cues that would help. I think that's a really good setup. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, like I tell them, I, I tell the students, I tell EMTs, like just in your head, count to seven, 
you know, I know it sounds stupid, but do it, you know, um, you know, there are EMS agencies that are now putting these, uh, very basic level ventilators on their, uh, on their units. And, you know, the people poo poo them, you know, cause I think they're like, well, it's not an LTV or a revel, or it doesn't yeah. do all these modes. And in reality for an intubated patient, you know, you need, I like it because I can set it. It's going to give me 10 breaths a minute of 400 and something milliliters tidal volume at a peep of five. And it's going to do that until I shut it off. And that's a really, like when we talk about cognitive load, um, you know, when, it, when they brought them out to our shop, our, you know, some of our senior people were like, oh, I'm not using that. I don't trust that. I'm like, no, you don't realize how cool this is. You can literally turn this on and you don't have to worry about it. You can watch the monitor, watch your capnography, make sure as long as it's delivering a breath, it's going to give you exactly what you want, exactly when you want it, exactly the amount you want at a pressure that's safe. You can't do that as a human consistently. I mean, listen, there are some people that are really good at BVM ventilation, but you're not a ventilator. Absolutely. And, and these things are coming down in cost. And I think I think it's start, time we start thinking about using them on a more universal level, using the BVM as a bridge to get out to a device like this so that we can transport a better, more viable patient. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And um, when I had introduced ventilators similar to the ones that you're describing, and there's certainly better ones available now, um, I ran into a lot of the same problems. And uh, honestly, I learned a lot about being, and I hate using these buzzwords, but uh, they, they fit so well, but being an effective change agent, like being a better change agent, being able to introduce something like this in a way that people are going to be able to use it and really get to do it. Um, and, and it's going to make patients' lives better. And it's going to make EMT and paramedics' lives and jobs easier. So the one other thing that I would mention to those listeners who are thinking like, well, you know, I, I like this idea or I like that idea that we've heard on the podcast and, you know, man, it's going to be tough to get the, the medical director to change or the service chief to change or, you know, uh, the, 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 the salty EMTs or paramedics to change and find the people who might be your advocates, you know, people who may be interested and make sure that they have the, again, the tools, the education, all the stuff that we talked about to help set them up for success and then give them the opportunity to succeed either in a good simulation or hopefully, you know, out there in the real world, because nothing convinces people like the real world. And, and as, as much of, you know, maybe you, you are higher ranking in your organization and you could just snap your fingers um, uh, or, or maybe you're, you know, the new person who just happens to listen to this cool podcast, either way, you know, you need to have other people who can say, I tried it, it convinced me, and have them say that when you're out of the room, okay? Because you, you're just going to be, you know, you're going to be the evangelist. You're going to be, you know, I'm telling you we're going to do it this way. Oh, it's going to be the greatest thing. But people need to hear from other people who have actually done it. They're not just going to do it, you know, even if you're the chief and you say, oh, I'm just going to wave my magic chief's hat and everybody's just going to do it this way. Um, if you really want anything more than grudging compliance, you know, you, you got to have the convincer for when you walk out of the room. And I think all the stuff that we're talking about may not all be applicable for every service out there, but, uh, but make, make sure that, uh, you know, you're, you're applying it the right way because all of this stuff works really well. 
a great way to end it. Uh, ending it with some organizational wisdom and leadership uh, from definitely from one of the thought leaders of the profession. Uh, Rami, where can people find you on social media, and where are you gonna where are you gonna be presenting? What do you do you want to plug whatever you have? I know you have a <laughs> website, and you do some of these classes that you know. If people are interested in having you come out and uh, kind of do some training with them, where can they get you? Sure. Well, uh, really kind of two places, two Twitter accounts, two emails, but it all kind of comes down to uh, either Rom Duck, romduckworth.com. So it's, you know, Rom Duck uh, or Rescue Digest. So rescuedigest.com has all of my stuff for classes that, uh, you know, a lot of resources, articles that I've written, stuff like that. You know, we don't really sell anything on or anything like that. People want to know more about, um, you know, programs that I do individually, um, they can go to romduck.com. Uh, and the same thing, I'm on Twitter uh, as romduck, mostly talking about clinical stuff or at rescue digest, more talking about in performance improvement and leadership stuff. And, you know, how we take some of the clinical stuff and we implement it in your, uh, you know, in your service, but, uh, you know, please reach out to me and, uh, you know, I've got a kind of a, a weird and unique name. So you could just Google me to get a hold of me. <laughs> you want to talk about this stuff, man. I love talking about this stuff. This is, this is how we're going to change the world. Now that's a great way. That's a great way to end it. Um, Rami Duckworth, uh, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Uh, can we get you on again in the near future? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Man, I'll talk about anything. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll send you some swag and kind of make it, you know, we'll make it worth your while. We're, you know. Um, all right. So uh, tell us what you think. Um, you know, reach out to us, uh, you know, uh, overrunproductions.com. Uh, look at the overrun on Facebook. Yes, I know we're still on Facebook. Um, overrun EMS on Twitter. You can follow Glam Podcast One on Twitter. And we're on Instagram. And I think we're moving somewhere to TikTok. I don't know yet. Anna keeps bothering us about it. So um, for the overrun, I'm Dan Schwester. And uh, thanks for listening. Get home safe.